In this episode, we're going to talk about this kind of big, hairy word, uh, deconstruction. Uh, in our last conversation, Nijay and I talked about uh, the relationship between faith and belief, and we sort of landed on this idea that faith and belief are both necessary, but they're also both very different. And today we want to talk about deconstruction. Uh, in my research and in my book, After Doubt, I talk about these, what I outline as three stages in our, what I call our theological journey. What I mean by that is when you read the book of John, for example, you see this story of a guy named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, at the very beginning of John's gospel, has this interaction with Jesus at night. He's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. And he comes to Jesus at night because he's terrified of being seen with Jesus. Uh, one nerdy New Testament scholar I was reading called him Nick and Knight in a footnote, footnote once, and I could tell he was really nice. proud of himself. So Nick and Knight comes to Jesus at night. He's terrified. The second time we see Nicodemus is there's a council of the Sanhedrin that's essentially gathering to determine what to do with this radical messianic upstart named Jesus. And there we see the second reference to Nicodemus. He's actually sticking up for Jesus and saying, why would we sort of judge him or condemn him if we don't know the full story? Which is a very telling shift from the first story we saw Nicodemus. And then the third time we see Nicodemus is after Jesus's death. Uh, but this time Nicodemus comes to Jesus with 70 pounds of myrrh to bury um, what appears to be a sort of kingly burial service to bury a king. So you have this story of Nicodemus and John going from fear to sympathy with Jesus to uh, burying his king. And what this reflected to me and reflects to me is that even in the, in the Bible, these characters that we look at as um, these, touch, these touchstones, these, these heroes of the faith or people that we look to about what Christian faith looks like, even they went through um, theological journeys of developing how they thought about God, what they thought about Jesus, and eventually coming to worship God uh, in a way that they maybe never imagined. In <clears throat> After Doubt, I talk about these three stages. I, I talk about the stage of what we call construction. Uh, in the theological construction stage, this is when we, we learn sort of our first language about faith. Often we believed in some church and we're handed a bunch of language about how to talk about God. And those early years of faith are very important. We're taught the simple basics of faith. But somewhere along the way, and this often coincides usually with maybe college or a post-college experience or your first loss or transition, you go through a season where you begin to question some of the beliefs you were originally handed. Uh, we in, in the theological world call this deconstruction. It's beginning to question those original as-if beliefs, those beliefs that you just received as-is. And now you're beginning to question those as-is beliefs. But what, what a lot of Christians don't understand is that that is not the end of the theological journey. And a lot of Christians assume that it is. See, in the conservative side of the theological spectrum, you'll sort of have this pigeonholed perspective that doubt and deconstruction are inherently bad. That's actually what we're going to talk about in our next episode, the difference between good and bad deconstruction. So on the right, we're, we sort of demonize doubt or, or look down on doubt and deconstruction. But even the, the problem is as bad on the left, the theological left, because there it's not demonized, it's valorized. And it's almost a required experience that you don't really believe unless you're living in this angsty, deconstructive, tear it all apart and burn it up stage. And what we want to talk about today is we want to talk about maybe a, a via media, a middle road. 
that we shouldn't demonize it, but we also shouldn't valorize it and actually begin to see deconstruction and doubt as a part of our journey to following Jesus. And of course, there's a whole nother stage that we call reconstruction, which is this eventual returning to the faith we once had. Paul Ricoeur talk, talked about this idea of the second naivete, coming once again with fresh eyes to this original faith that we had. Uh, personally, having gone through all three stages, I can say that that last stage is extraordinarily beautiful. Of After sort of going through a season of doubt and struggle, of coming back once again to the God who is there all along. Nijay, when we think about deconstruction, and what we see happening in the church. Um, how, how do you see deconstruction playing itself out right now in, in sort of the way normal people follow Jesus? Yeah, that's a good question, AJ. And, and um, you know, I, I, I feel like the, we talked about this in the last episode, but deconstruction tends to be seen as an undoing of construction, as if it's a demolition of what was there before. And honestly, for a lot of people, that just leads to disappointment with God, disappointment with the church, disappointment with themselves. Um, we talked about before, had we warned people that a simple faith needs to be nuanced, a simple faith needs life experience and character, it might look different. So, for example, for many, many years, I've taught Greek, you know, for the biblical language, Greek. And, you know, there's, you know, amongst the, you know, special group of people that have an occupation teaching Greek, we have this idea that um, year one, we teach students all the rules of Greek grammar. And year two, then we teach them all the exceptions. Mm. <laughs> and there are more exceptions sometimes than the rules. Yeah, right. But there's a reason we do that. If you just start with all of the case studies and exceptions, people aren't going to get a lay of the land. So in some sense, that first stage is artificial. Hmm. It's almost like a flight simulator. A flight simulator is going to help you understand the horizon and the sky and how to use the controls. But the real experience is going to be a lot messier. Um, I'm going to use a video game analogy for all my video game friends out there. Love Every it. year I buy a new, for my birthday, I buy a new version of FIFA, uh, which is pretty much the only, only video game I play. And um, every year they don't change the game very much. They just add some little refinement, like they're going to put a little sharper grass in, or they're going to make the faces on the, on the players look a little more realistic. And I feel like deconstruction when it is done well is really going to nuance the faith we have and not completely demolish it. So when people, you know, this is why I love uh, the conversations we're having and the work that you're doing in your book, After Doubt, because um, we're trying to look at deconstruction in a different way. If we only look at it as, oops, I was wrong about Christianity, then yeah, it's demolition. But if you look at it as the possibility of taking that blobby faith and shaping it into something more realistic, yeah, um, then that can that can be a whole different thing. Now, what I don't want to do is just make it all sound real sweet and nice. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's not. And only through many challenges and difficulties do we deconstruct in a, in a healthier way. But um, I feel like this is just a part of growing up. So, for example, if you love um, music, I was a worship leader once, if you can believe it. And I, I became a worship leader for my love of God and my love of music. If you do it long enough, you start to hate music. Right. <laughs> and you might even start to hate God because it becomes a routine. You start to learn how picky musicians are. You start to hate the music because it's so Hillsong or elevation or whatever. And you start to get cynical. You start to get um, gruff about it. And so I had to step away and I had to be like, I'm not worshiping God. I'm actually cursing the church. Wow. Because I just got calloused and I and I saw the ugly side, you know, like when they say for the love of football, for the love of the sport, for the love of the game, I didn't love the game. And I think we need to make it okay. Uh, I talk to pastors sometimes that feel like they can't leave their ministry position because it will be failure. And I want to normalize it and say, you know, everyone goes through hard times to step away is not a problem. So I think, I think going back to the original uh, question about deconstruction, I think we have to normalize it in some ways and make it a a healthy process of the Christian faith rather than the first door towards atheism. Yep. So what I hear you saying is, is actually at the end of the day, there are moments where deconstruction can actually be a necessary part and an important part of our Christian journey. I, for example, tell me if this rings true to you. When I first met Jesus, I was 16 years old. I uh, was actually in my math class in high school. I overheard these two girls arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They'd been reading this book called The Left Behind Series. I had never heard the gospel story, uh, raised in a, a, a home that was not, uh, didn't, didn't really identify as a, as a particularly Christian home. Um, but I was in a really bad spot at that place in life. I went home, read my Bible, became a Christian, and I started going to church. And the very first time I went to church was I went to this uh, this conservative evangelical uh, church in my hometown uh, that that I was at for a good two years. And I look back over that church, and I am so grateful to God for that church. They taught me how to love the Bible. They taught me how to share the, the gospel. Uh, they taught me how to repent. They taught me about the Trinity. I mean, they gave me that construction experience. And I yeah. look back on that, and I go, that was so good. But that same community also gave me a very low view of women. Hmm. And actually, at some point in the in the journey— I woke up to the fact that part of what I'd received in construction actually probably needed to be undone. Right. But, but that didn't mean I chucked the whole thing. That doesn't mean you say the whole thing is wrong. You, you do what any, any, anybody would say, you know, you eat the meat and spit out the bones. You take the good and you, and you let the parts go that don't reflect Jesus. And the truth is, am I not right? That any community that hands us a vision of what it means to follow Jesus can't help but hand us an imperfect vision because there is no perfect church. There's this beautiful illustration that Eugene Peterson uses uh, about the church. He says, you know, we go to the hospital to get healthy. Um, And often we do get healthy at the hospital, but from time to time we go to the hospital and actually pick up a new disease at the hospital. Mm. And he says, there's a whole array of diseases that you get at the hospital called iatrogenic diseases. These are diseases that you pick up when you're there. And, And in a way, in a very real way, the very place where we all receive the gospel tends to be a place that we pick up all these new diseases. And that part of deconstruction 
is learning how to see those faith family of origin things rightly and undo them in order to follow God more wholly. Is that true? Yeah, man, that's, that's a good illustration. And, you know, when I think about the Bible, um, a couple of things come to mind in terms of how we can process this. One is I'd love to ask the question, what would God have done had he done it differently? Would he have just said, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to like text everybody the full truth individually so that no one gets it wrong. He didn't do that. Hmm. He actually uses flawed churches, flawed leaders, flawed people. That doesn't mean we don't um, fire people sometimes for being, you know, derelict of duty. Yes. It doesn't mean we don't have hard conversations with people, but he chose to use imperfect people to spread his mission and ministry, not the least of which Judas. Uh, and then you have Peter with all of, you know, his stuff. And then he ended up being the rock, you know, if, if yes. you follow that interpretation. I think about another thing, someone like St. Paul, who I spent a lot of time studying. And Paul can come across in his letters very intrepid in his faith. But he also says things like, hey, Timothy, nobody came to my defense. Hey, Timothy, everybody deserted me. My close friends they left me. And he says to Timothy, hey, can you come here when you can? Because I need you. He does this with Epaphroditus and Philippians as well. He says, I, I, I'm having a hard go, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, sometimes we look at the Bible to see the perfect. Um, and what we end up seeing in a lot of ways is uh, people who had a real flaw in their own experiences. So Paul wasn't immune to this challenge. Paul wasn't immune to uh, knowing the discouragements of people leaving him. And yet he still followed the faith. This is probably true for you too, where in my lowest times of faith and in my greatest moments of doubt, I think what brought me back, and we're going to talk about this in another episode, but what brought me back was these people who I just trusted the heck out of who knew all the ugly parts of Christianity even better than I do. And yet they're like, I trust the grace of God. Uh, I'm going to move forward with this. And that, that's part of faith. What, what, has that been your experience too? hundred percent. In fact, I've noticed a shift, a, a really interesting shift in, in the way that I lead students. Now, what I find is that, you know, we, we when we approach Christianity with this with this this lens or this mindset that my job as a Christian leader is to, is to give people all the answers right if I become this answer machine then people that then I'm trusted or something like that what I'm, I'm actually learning and this is counterintuitive I mean it, it goes against everything that that feels right to me but that actually I engender trust in my students and the people that I pastor when I let them into my deepest faith struggle, um, when I actually invite them into that, because I, like you, Nijay, we were talking about this earlier today. There are things that still keep me up at night mm. that I don't have answers to. And I, I'm doing a disservice to my students when I pretend as though those aren't there. I want them to actually know those are, those are real Issues now. There's tension in that. You know, these are sheep. They're not camels. It's not their job to carry my junk for me. Right. But there is an element of camaraderie and life that comes with seeing your heroes struggle with faith. 
You mentioned, you, you made an interesting point there. You actually, you juxtaposed Judas and Peter, who both, as far as I read it, have one thing in common. They both turn their back on Jesus. Right. But that wasn't the end of either of their stories. It actually was only the end of one of their stories. The, it becomes the end of Judas's story, but not Peter's. That we actually have an apostle who turned away, but then Jesus meets him on a shore and, and reinstates him. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, there will, there's lots of questions about Judas we can ask about what relationship he has to Satan possessing him and all of that. And I won't get into that. But with Peter, at the very least, we can say, you know, I go back to the Gospel of John, I think chapter eight or six, where, um, you know, I love this scene from the Gospel of John where Jesus is teed up to give just a show stopping sermon. And um, I would love to have been his PR person and been like, okay, Jesus, the nice. crowd's warm. Give us your best, like attractive message. And he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want anything mm -hmm. to do with me. And they have no idea what he's talking about. And then it says all these people left and they just said to heck with Jesus, no way. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, where are you going to go to? And they say, where are we going to go? Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. They didn't say, we fully get what you're saying, right. Jesus. Yep. We get it. Right. They don't understand what he's saying. And yet there's something in his person, his mission, uh, his words that they can't let go of. Mm. And Peter was one of those people. And I think what ends up happening is Peter, will, even with all his flaws and all his doubts and all of his um, failures, uh, he clings and holds on tight to Jesus and says, I, I'm not going to let go. Even if you don't want me anymore, I, I, there's something about you that I, you know, I just have to, I just have to, to follow you to wherever you're going. Right. And this is where we have to make a differentiation between the type of Christianity that we check off on a box on a census and what Bonhoeffer called Nachfolge. So the original title that Bonhoeffer gave to his discipleship book. I knew it as cost of discipleship. The original title in German is Nachfolge, which means following after. Mm. And I love that because discipleship to us can be sort of a, a, a program, like read the Bible in a year and pray 10 times a day. But Nachfolge is an action following after. And I think what, what the difference was between Peter and Judas is Peter chose to follow after Jesus even if he f didn't fully understand him, even if he was a failure in so many things, yep. even if he saw that Jesus was doing things he couldn't understand, he still followed him. And, and I mean, there's probably more to it than that, but that, that to me seems really important to, to say nothing of the fact that we have him in just a few chapters standing up as the first person to preach after the fall of the Holy That's Spirit. Right. And, and so in the sense, actually the one who goes through that full on tears everything apart, rejects Jesus sort of experience actually becomes the most empowered in the next story. Um, there's a line in one of my favorite uh, authors, Robert Ferrar Capon, who is talking about how preachers struggle with this all the time or people who do ministry struggle with this gnawing sense of shame. Like I've got too much sin in my life to be able to do ministry. And he, he has this line, this throwaway, throwaway line where he says, um, you know, if a sinner can't preach the gospel, who's left? 
Yeah. And, and, and Peter exemplifies that actually the one who walks through deconstruction, when they, imagine this, when they walk through deconstruction faithfully to Jesus, yeah. they come out the other side empowered in a way that they never could have understood before. Nijay, has there been a time in your life that you can dis- that you can say Jesus did lead you through a moment of deconstruction where something needed to be undone so you could follow Jesus more faithfully? I mean, to understand my story, you have to you have to start with my original experience of Jesus, which similar to you as a teenager, a 16 year old in high school, I was struggling with a lot of things in life. I was stuttering with um, some sin issues. I was struggling with um, what we call self-esteem, self-image. I felt like I just didn't fit in, in my family and my community and my school. Um, I struggled with a lot of health issues, which I still have problems with. And honestly, the gospel um, changed all of that. I say that to say nothing has ever put out that fire in me that, you know, the gospel has really changed my life. I would say um, my, my lowest struggle in terms of doubt, I've had hard struggles in life with, you know, my daughter having uh, an illness and some other things, but I'd say my biggest uh, doubt struggle has been just in the area of why can't Christians agree? Why can't Christian, why are Christians always tearing each other down? How can this be the true way if uh, Christians are some of the meanest people I've encountered? Mm-hmm. Um, how did Jesus get me through that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, AJ. I, I don't know. I, I think, I think we, you and I have talked about privately just the noise of social media, the noise uh, of a of a technological world where you hear everyone's thoughts all the time, I think how I've how Jesus has got me through that is leadership people in my life that have said, "Hey, come follow me." Maybe not directly to me, but say, "Hey, I'm going to try to lead you through this." I'll sk- I'll just give a shout out to my colleague Scott McKnight. He's never really said to me, "Hey, do the things do things the way I do," but but he is one of these leaders where. He knows all the ugly parts of Christianity, but there's so much light and hope in his ministry and in his heart that I feel empowered by kind of walking in his footsteps. I'm not saying that to kiss up to you, Scott, if you're listening. Uh, I, I I feel like I need those people to get me through. Um, but what about you? I, I, I don't want to make it sound like doubt is this great thing. Yes. No, <laughs> I don't no, want to. No. I don't want to. I don't want people to walk away from this podcast thinking, oh, they just tied a nice neat bow on doubt and deconstruction. Uh, t- tell me, have you had those moments yourself where y- you've kind of hit rock bottom and you just feel like, gosh, what a, what the heck am I? I mean, you were a pastor. I mean, in many ways you still are, but you were like a pulpit preaching pastor and you can't duck that when yeah. you're going through a hard time. Yeah. So what, what's it been like for you? Yeah. And, and all, all, all of hearing your story, there's got to be a lot more there as there is for anybody who's walked through doubt and deconstruction. It's a big, bigger story than a, a short 35 minute podcast for me. Um, my, my darkest season of Christian faith, uh, actually really was adjacent to my time in seminary. 
Mm. Um, in, in seminary, what happened, you know, I had this young faith. I love Jesus. And then I go to seminary and I start learning all these things about the Bible I didn't know. Um, I remember one of the, one of the things that really rocked my world that made, made, that shook me up a bit was being in seminary and being in classes with people that love Jesus from totally different Christian traditions than my own. Mm -hmm. My little evangelical faith that thought that my little insular world was the only world was shattered and that God was clearly bigger than my, my tribe, right? Shocking. That rocked me. Um, but really, the, I would say the darkest part of my doubt and deconstruction story was a shift that took place, because I was pastoring at the time and going to seminary, was the shift I began to notice in my spirit and my gut, where I was learning these things in seminary, and I was bringing these things to the church environment yeah. and utilizing them to get people to like me. Wow. What was happening was, I mean, I was I was going all Foucaultian using knowledge for power. I mean, I was I was throwing around Greek words and Hebrew words and finding out Isaiah was way more complicated than anybody ever thought. And and I had him, I actually had an experience in a class. I write this in the book. I was leading a Bible study, and I had this one session where I had about 10 uh, people in our college group who were sitting with me, and I I did this talk on whether Moses wrote the Pentateuch or not, the first mm. five books of the Bible. And is that, a, is that a fine question to ask? Sure, that's an important question to ask. That's not a bad thing to ask. But I walked away from that conversation, and in my heart, I knew I wasn't asking that question because I wanted to serve God's people. I was doing it because I wanted people to think I look smart. Yeah. And for me, that shift really woke me up to my relationship to knowledge. I was not utilizing knowledge as a way to serve people. I was utilizing it as a way, you know, we all can use the Bible in the wrong way, right? We can use the Bible as a sword to harm, or we can use it as a sword to protect and care. And I was using truth, not as a means to serve, but as a means to give myself power. And that really woke me up to some dark things that were happening in my own gut that needed, needed to be addressed. One of my favorite things to ask a Christian, and I do this in almost every one of my undergraduate classes, is I love to ask the question, because it tells you everything about where they're at. I love to ask the question, when was the last time you were wrong about God? Yeah, wow. And here's why I love this question, because how you answer that says everything about where you're at. If you've never been wrong about God, there's a very good chance you've never met him. Right. But if, if, if like your, if, if like your answer as well as like last week, I was reading the da 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 and I discovered in the Bible that da da da, then you're moldable. You're, you're, you're willing to be rocked and changed by the spirit of God. And that, and that actually, I mean, it's ironic to me. I think Christianity is the only movement in the world that says, if you've been on the right track and you acknowledge it, it's the sign you're on the right track. <laughs> Like we actually have a, we actually believe that part of being a Christian is a continual awareness of ways we've been wrong. And that can, over time, we slowly are called to sanctify even our thoughts about God. That I wrote this down. It's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis uh, moments in his book, A Grief Observed, in which he's reflecting on his wife, Joy, who had passed away. And there's this gripping section in the book where he is talking about this picture he has of Joy. And he confesses 
that he started to love the picture of his wife more than he loved his wife. And he said this, he writes this uh, in the midst of, uh, 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 in the midst of, of this, this beautiful section. He says, I needed Christ, not something that resembled him. I want joy, my wife, not something that is like her. A really good photograph might become in the end a snare, a horror, and an obstacle. Because images of the holy easy beca- easily become holy images, sacrosanct. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. And it is God who shatters it. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? That the incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And what what he's saying there is he's saying that one of the signs that you love Jesus is that you are willing to let your images of Jesus be shattered by Jesus. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Yeah, because, you know, I, I think in the kind of the self-help world that we live in, we want the perfect diet that's going to get us to lose weight in 10 minutes. We want the perfect gym that will give us the muscles we want in 20 minutes. And we want the perfect religion that's going to solve all our problems and give us karma and inner healing in an instant without all the challenges that come with relationships and community. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I, I, I could totally see that. I mean, we do that with our churches. We want our church to be perfect. And if not, we're going to go to a different church mm-hmm. like tomorrow. You know, um, it's, it's, it's almost inevitable given the consumeristic mentality we have towards life. Um, and and um, I, I appreciate that quote because it, it, is a, it is a challenge to all of us to rethink how we look at God are we, are we worshiping an idol, which may be an image of the true God that yep. doesn't actually reflect all the nuance we see in scripture? Isn't that interesting? I mean, the second commandment, don't worship anything that looks like God. Uh, to, to, that actually, you know, I'm a theologian. This is, this is, this is the world of theology. We, one of the, I would say the idolatry of the realm of theology is that we worship our ideas of God more than we worship God. And that the sign that we actually love God is we're, 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 we're okay with our ideas of God being shattered in order to love God more. Do you, Nije, I think about this idea. My friend Jerry Root at Wheaton College once told me, he said, when we enter heaven, when we enter heaven, he says, the first thing we will say about God, or the first thing we will say when we enter the glory of God, he says, is we will enter the glory of God and we will all say, oh, (laughs) I see it. And that actually the presence of God, heaven, will be the ultimate deconstruction. And all of our false knowledge of God will fall to the ground. And that our task today is just to start practicing heaven a little early. That we're okay with God shattering our wrong ideas so we can know more. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to get all like, you know, platonic or anything, but... Um, this idea of seeing in this world with shadows, you know, we, we don't see a, that greater reality. We see a really small part of reality. I think that's true. I mean, if you watch the Mars landing, you know, the, mm. uh, the you know, rover landing, you know, and I saw a picture where they showed a telescopic image of Mars from like the 1800s. And then they showed the one now. And it's amazing, even though it's a picture of the exact same thing, how much crisper and more defined the one is now. Mm. And then back then, even though it was a marvel of technology to be able to see the moon, 
from Earth, um, it was just this big black and white blob. And I feel like in many ways, that's the way we see things. Although I think that's for a reason, AJ. I think, I think th- there's, there's a particular theological perspective that I teach my students from Christian tradition called Deus Absconditus. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that God hides, the God who hides. And I think part of our doubt is because of the reality that God doesn't want to just pull the curtain back and show us everything. He wants us to chase after him. There's some theological reason why God wants us to go through the struggle of grasping for him. Yeah. Would you say that's true? 100%. To to the degree that I think there are times, and again, we're, we're getting into now our own, our own sort of approaches to following Jesus. I actually think there are times that God withholds the answers so that we will pursue him. The book of Proverbs says that it is the glory of King. It is the glory of God to hide a matter and it's the glory of Kings to seek it out. And that is that God intentionally will withhold truth, not withhold it in a mean way, but to cause us to seek him more. Because the truth is, I mean, you mentioned, <laughs> we can't know it all. I mean, in the Old Testament, right? If people saw God's face, they died. Right. They're always saying, God, if we see, we know we're going to see your face, we'll die. And of course, there's this beautiful transition between the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, when we see God's face, we die. In the New Testament, God shows us his face and he dies on a cross. We have this switch hmm. and we actually are allowed to per, we're permitted to see something of the glory of God in a way that we couldn't before, but we can't in the word. Jack Nicholson was right. We can't handle the truth. <laughs> it's too much for us. Right. And that if God actually showed us everything, you know, my, my friend, Kurt Harlow, who pastors down in California, he says, we can't even handle what we're going to be doing in two weeks from now. If God told us we were doing in two weeks from now, we'd all need adult depends. None <laughs> of us could handle it. Right. It's just too much. And so in a way, God actually chooses at times to hold back the whole story because he knows we can't handle it. Hmm. And what that is, frankly, it's the story of a God is a good parent because my son is nine. If I marched into my son's room and just decided I wanted to tell him everything about the Holocaust today, it would destroy him. (laughs) Wow. If I walked into his room and explained the nuances of what sexual intercourse is all about, he would never want to talk to his parents ever again. But a good parent knows There's not just the importance of truth, but telling truth in a time and a moment that is right. It's the parable of the good sower, is that God knows the difference between just speaking to speak and speaking at the right moment. Nijay, we're out of time, and we're going to talk about the difference between good deconstruction and bad deconstruction next time. But ultimately, this has been a really helpful conversation, and the hope would be that anybody that's listening to this could actually begin to recognize and even invite God into moments of doubt and deconstruction and refuse to see those as a problem. Because as we know, from time to time, the sign that you got a good marriage is you got problems. Absolutely. Until next time.